Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. Today, we have with us Eric Gaganon. Eric is a little different than most of our guests on the podcast because he specializes in a specific vertical. I think you're going to find his transactional stories interesting, even though he doesn't specialize in a lot of different businesses, just one business niche. What his stories will demonstrate is that the same principles that apply to one type of business or niche generally have broad applicability in most types of businesses. The first story that he shares today is about how a business owner's lack of transparency with his M&A advisor ended up taking his transaction and sure deal to zero, and how the IRS killed his deal without breaking a sweat. In another transaction, Eric tells how a buyer walked away from a deal allowing the seller to resell the business again in a matter of months and was able to keep all of the proceeds from the sale of the first deal. This is called double dipping. You're going to find this story really fascinating. Next, Eric shares how, if you are growing your business through acquisitions, regardless of how messy an acquisition is, these can turn out to be your most profitable deals. He shares a real-life example of how this came about. Finally, Eric gives some practical advice on how taking some reasonable risk in selling your business can turn out well for all parties concerned and he shares some secrets on how to manage this type of risk prudently. This is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories. Today we have a unique episode with us. Most of the people we have on our episodes and podcast here share stories about all different types of businesses, but today we have Eric Gagon with us who's a specialist. He specializes in food service and restaurants, and you're going to find not only is the stories that he shares with us are unique and interesting, Uh, you're going to find that the same type of principles that exist in almost any type of business also exist in restaurants. And I think by discussing a specific niche and vertical, we actually learn a little bit more about the general principles of business exits. So without any further ado, I'm going to have Eric introduce himself and chat a little bit about his business and what part of the country he's located in. Thank you, Marvin. Happy to be on your show. Appreciate the invite. Uh, Again, Eric Gagnon, I'm president and founder of We Sell Restaurants. We are headquartered out of uh, Palm Coast, Florida. We've been in business for just over 20 years. We operate in about 47 states. We are the largest restaurant brokerage firm in the country. So we've signed uh, probably over 4,000 transactions in that period of time. And we've been transacting uh, franchise as well as independent restaurants, bars and nightclubs throughout the country. Well, we're delighted to have you here on the podcast because I think some of the transactions and concepts that you'll share with us will benefit people uh, regardless of the type of business that they're in. And some of the things that we need to realize when we're positioning a business for exit is that these concepts and principles of uh, general business practice as well as positioning for successful exits are absolutely crucial that you understand the various iterations that these can take regardless of the type of business. So, Eric, would you share a transaction with us? I mean, if you've done over 4,000 transactions in your career, there's probably some of those that have some real unique twists and turns to them. So why don't we talk about one of those that had their challenges? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, when you reach out, there was a, uh, a lot of interesting stories. So I'll try to pick some, some one for you. Um, one of them is, involves an uh, office cafe in a Class A building in the Atlanta market, which was a uh, 
something of, of high appeal to buyers and usually fetch top dollars for sellers. So what, why would a, an office cafe, you know, for those that used to work in office buildings, you know, you come down to these little hole-in-the-wall cafes that are in the basement or lower levels of an office building. It, was that what we're talking about here or was this something larger scale? Uh, good question. You're right. Well, we all been to these. Actually, this was a, a much larger scale. It was a classy office building. This is a 2,000 square foot fully equipped facility with full kitchen with hood grease straps and hot lines and the dining room as well as a agora for the building adjacent to it so this is more of a, a restaurant within the building so and it's got a lot of appeal because most people like the hours of these types of operations okay what was the motivation behind selling this location so the seller was ready the seller has been in the industry for a long period of time and i think he was ready to uh trade this um, office cafe for a nice house on the beach and a book and uh, go spend time with the grandkids. They were ready to transition into retirement life. All right. Now, how did the transactions kind of move forward? Were there a lot of interested buyers? Yes, there was. Uh, these type of uh, businesses are very, very popular. Uh, after we got on the market, we ended up in a situation with uh, multiple offers at the same time in a very short period of time after uh, we went to market. I would imagine uh, in your type of business that is a little unusual to have multiple offers. Absolutely. And we're talking from the time we went to market to the time we have offers, we're talking around the 45 days mark, which is very unusual, which is more usually six to nine months. And getting multiple offer and go above asking price it's highly unusual in, in our world. You're correct. And what were the terms? I mean, if you have multiple people at the table, generally you create a little bit of urgency and sometimes some bidding up of the price, and especially on the terms. What were the criteria? Was this going to be a financed offer or a cash offer? What, what was the terms and how did the transaction unfold? So in this specific case, we had multiple offers. Some were cash offers at a lower price, and some had financing offers at a higher price. But in part of our offering, we had um, talking to uh, SBA lenders, and we had the business pre-qualified for lending. So we didn't know that the business would qualify for lending. So that was one less worry for our sellers as far as the doubt that will it qualify for lending or not. Let me just jump in there, Eric. I just want to make a comment for our, our listeners out there. This whole concept of being pre-qualified for an SBA loan is something that a lot of buyers look for and a lot of sellers don't actually give that a lot of consideration. They don't get pre-qualified. So if you're in that position and thinking of selling and you're going to be using almost any type of financing, whether it's SBA or other financing, you should have your ducks in a row and, and check that off so it doesn't become a, a barrier to facilitating a fast close. And what you're telling me you did here is actually go through the process and working with a lender and checking off those boxes and having the lender, based on the financial information that is provided, they said they would lend based on what they had been provided. That is correct. From the from the sell side, they look at the financial information from the seller and says, hey, this is worthy of, of financing. Of course, the second part of it will be to review the the borrower slash buyer's information and make sure that their side of the equation works. But you're already 50% of the way there from the sell side. Once you get that done, that step ahead of time. That is correct. And it provides, like you said, great value. And it does make your business stand up from other businesses in the marketplace. So it sounds like this is going to be a great transaction. I mean, it's kind of unfolding. I mean, you have a, a highly desirable type of business that is in a great location, full service restaurant, basically, cafe and an office building with multiple buyers at the table, a pre a qualified SBA loan. What could go wrong with a transaction like this? Uh, I, I know this looks like a, a, a dream come true. Very short period on the market. Seller is very happy. Buyers things a phenomenal cash flow and ready to go from a broker. We're at a very short period of time on the market. So we go into due diligence. Of course, we did accept an offer uh, from one of the buyers that we presented. And we go into due diligence and buyer asks for additional material. We uh, At that point, they get to review profit and loss statement, tax returns, uh, monthly sales tax receipt, POS, point of sales system records, 
embarrassing like that. They perform equipment inspections in conjunction with the lending uh, approval that keeps going on now to borrowers as buyers also providing their information to the bank for approval. So just out of curiosity, Eric, was this buyer somewhat experienced or were they first-time buyers? Had they been in the restaurant business before? What was a little bit of a profile for the buyer? Good question. They had uh, experience in a smaller type of office cafes in the past. Not recently. They did not know in another location. So it was kind of going back into that field after um, hiatus from them to do something different in the food business. So they had food background, but not recent office cafe, but they'd done it like in the five years past. That was their profile. All right, great. So they're now doing their due diligence. And I think, you know, from what you've told me, uh, you had that due diligence package ready to go. Were they able to confirm most of the items uh, on the due diligence checklist? They felt pretty good overall with with everything. There were some minor issues with equipment repairs and deferred maintenance, but nothing that was a deal breaker. Seller agreed to to correct this on or before closing. So nothing major came out of due diligence, which was um, very positive for buyer and the seller. So what we're waiting on one last step is the final bank approval from underwriting in order to move forward to the next step. So. Uh, one of the steps that the bank does is uh, sellers have to agree to uh, sign up for a form that the bank will request tax returns directly from the IRS, uh, Form 8506T, for some of you that are very technical out there. So that's a requirement that most SBA lenders have is that they will accept you know, and look at the tax returns, but they're going to actually have you fill out a form, this 8506T, uh, where the IRS will send you the actual tax returns that have been filed. So I know that's questions have come up a couple of times here on the podcast, and you should be aware of that as a seller. Absolutely. And the, usually we already provided the tax returns and the profit and loss statement and balance sheets to the lenders. So it's usually a formality just to verify that what was on file with the IRS is what was provided to them. So seller um, signed the the 85 or 60 and uh, was sent to the IRS and the IRS sent the tax returns to the bank. And to everyone's surprise, the tax returns that were on file with the IRS did not match the one that were provided during a due diligence period. Okay. So I want to get this clear. So I understand the details of the transaction here. The seller provided both you, the buyer, and the SBA lender, the actual tax returns he alleged were filed. But when the tax returns came back from the IRS, they were different. I'm curious, were they substantially different or just a few minor discrepancies? Very good question, Marvin. Actually, they were different probably the tune of 75% discrepancies at the, to the bottom line. Oh, time out here. The difference was 75% <laughs> difference. So yes. you're talking about three quarters of the income that had been reported allegedly by the seller, the tax returns that he provided, the actual tax returns were 75% less. That's incredible. Yes, that is very shocking. Yes, uh, to everybody. Of course, at that point, um, quickly, the lenders say, I'm out. And I don't blame them. And I don't know any other lender at that point that would want to uh, entertain underwriting such discrepancy. So, of course, as a role as a broker, mediators to try to find a way to make this work. So, seller acted very surprised and reached out to his accountant. And, of course, the options available to the seller at that point was to uh, amend his tax returns or to refile three years of taxes appropriately, which um, neither of the options were agreeable to the seller. I have to believe that if I'm the seller sitting in this situation and I've underreported my income to the IRS by 75%, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of back taxes that would have to be paid. Is that an accurate statement? Uh, I would think you're pretty accurate on this. That is correct. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, that's the choice. Now you have to either face that music or, you know, are we going to lose the deal? You're trying to sell. You're trying to retire. So it was a um, very challenging situation and uh, almost a no-win situation for 
the seller, from his perspective, um, the buyer is a little surprised, but um, we've done a lot of these. So we try to be very creative in some cases, especially cases like that, where the buyer is still at the table. So the buyer didn't disappear like the bank. No, that, that is the interesting part of this. It's like the buyers are like, you know, I understand this is not quite what it was represented, but we still think there's something there. I guess you're looking at a business that they reported on their tax returns as millions of dollars in revenue. And even though it was 75% less, there's still business there. It just depends on what it actually is going to turn out to be. Did the deal just fall apart at this point in time? Uh, it did not. We were able to come up with a kind of a creative solution a little bit. So basically, we have a seller that says, I'm making XYZ. We have paper that says, I'm making ABC. So we uh, came up with the buyer with an incentive where we will pay you at the closing table for the lower number, but we will actually give you a three-year upside to get you really close to what originally we had agreed if the sales will match in the next three years. The sales only matches the actual claims that you're making. So not profits or anything else, just straight top-line revenue. If they get back up to 100% of revenue of what the original sales price was, he'd get all of his money back in three years of what the original sales price was originally targeted to be. Correct. Pretty close to it. It was almost like 95% of the actual agreed upon, so small penalty. That's creative, and that's fair, it seems. Yeah, and that's where we were able to all agree on that. So. Um, of course, seller understood the predicament he was in and the liability and the risk that he has taken. But he agreed to that. And of course, there's a lot of ways you can, you know, misrepresent yourselves. But the seller has been operating that business for nine years. He knew what the business could do. We could look at other numbers and verify that the potential buyer would also emit sales. So even though he didn't report the revenue, he knew what the actual revenue was. So he was confident that any reasonable operator could come in and hit that target pretty close. Correct. Buyer knew it. Look, it's been there nine years. We know there's a track record. Nobody would stay in a business, you know, and not being profitable at a certain level for that long. So, um, because of his background, the first-time buyer would have never probably stayed at that table, but somebody that has experience in the food business was able to get uh, a pretty strong comfort level with that type of agreement. So you went directly to closing then, and everyone went away happy, right? Uh, I wish, I wish. But it's one more step in the transaction, because it's some office buildings, so there's a lease involved in the transaction, and we need to get a lease before we can go to closing. So now that we have finally a deal put together, we go to the landlord. Uh, they were in year nine, never a 10-year lease. So, of course, the buyer says, hey, I'll more likely get a new lease. I'd like to get a five-year lease with a five-year option or a 10-year lease, whichever. I got flexibility. So we put our package together and sent it to the landlord, which uh, it's a very large building, over 100 plus 25,000 square feet. So it is a large management company and it's a large institutional owner of the building. So after a week or so of processing, I get a phone call from the landlord. It says, you do know that uh, we have required a full remodel and upgrade of the cafe from the current owner a year ago. And uh, we said, nope, that is news to us at this point. So they were actually looking. So how much time was left on the lease? I mean, they're requiring a complete upgrade. Generally, that happens toward the end of a lease. You know, landlord is considering extending the lease, uh, either on an option or otherwise. How much time was left on the lease? There was less than a year left on the lease at that point. Was the upgrade they're requiring, was that going to be tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands? No, they wanted this full pretty much gut job, it's going to be hundreds of thousands to remodel that location. Remember, And that means when you're gutting it, that means no revenue for a period of months. Correct. We're talking probably three to six months. In addition to that, they wanted, there was a uh, kind of open common area. They wanted a, a kiosk cafe to be built in that area as well that was not even existing at that point, which is more revenues, but it's also cost to, to get that built out. So, yes, there was a major 
undertaking that was requested. I'm just dying to ask this question, Eric. Did the seller know of all this, or was this a big surprise to him like it was to you? No, the seller actually knew that for a year. They already discussed that a year prior, but he failed to disclose that to me or to the buyer at any time. So we have failure to disclose accurate tax returns, failure to disclose that the lease is going to require hundreds of thousands of dollars and three to six months without revenue and all that he did not disclose but knew? Correct. This is um, this was a shock. And of course, the buyer's reaction is like, I cannot pay a dollar to the seller in addition to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars remodeling and redeveloping a new menu. They wanted a fresh, total fresh new store for that location. That was the vision of the ownership. So I'm just curious. Obviously, the landlord hadn't received a response from the seller, and they were probably entertaining other people that would go in and redo that because you don't show up at the end of the lease without another tenant at that point in time. What happened? I mean, did the buyer just go away? Actually, interesting, yes. I mean, the, the landlord, the buyer really liked the location. It was a very nice building, and they had enough experience. So buyer says, I still would like to do something. So the landlord says, look, you don't have to buy it from the current seller. Why don't you uh, put a proposal in front of us? We're going to have several proposals, but entertain a proposal of what your vision would be, what your menu concept would be, and we'll consider you, and that way you don't have to pay to get in. We would just you know, award you the space if you're the winning party. So we pivoted from trying to purchase from the seller to work with now, uh, instead of lawyers and architect uh, lawyers and CPAs, we went to architects, menu developers, and design people to get drawings and things to actually put a full proposal in front of the landlord to be considered. Well, that's an interesting story. So we have a seller here that obviously didn't find a buyer for his business because of his own missteps and the lack of being forthright and transparent. What do you think are the big takeaways on a transaction like this for sellers out there that are looking to position their business for an exit? What's the big takeaway from this specific transaction? I think the biggest takeaway is, is you make sure that you're forthcoming with your team, whether it's your accountants, uh, your broker, your, your attorneys. I mean, uh, all the information you have it's easier and it's a bigger chance of success if you can disclose that on the forefront and find solutions than on the back end. And of course, you know, be truthful about your, your financials because that is going to be very devastating in the long run if you're not. Well, I think that this is a story that really dramatically emphasizes that you have these relationships with your trusted advisors, as you said, whether it's your CPA, your attorney, these people are there to help you. They understand the dynamics of a business and how fluid businesses can flow and and how things are reported, but you need to be upfront and truthful. And that goes with your advisors that are going to help you transition out of your business. Even if the information is going to be bad, you just need to be transparent because as this situation specifically points out, it didn't turn out very well. He took an asset that could have had a lot of value and turned it into an asset that had zero value because of the lack of transparency. Well, that's an interesting story, Eric, and one, quite frankly, that I've never heard of a 75% discrepancy. So that's a new one on me. So let's talk a little bit about something that may be not as dramatic in its outcome necessarily, but something that had an interesting twist to it uh, that didn't work out as you anticipated. Sure. So we had a uh, a family-owned ice cream parlor in suburban Atlanta, Um, husband and wife team with young children, and they passionate about it, and uh, it just opened up. So if you think about suburbia, Atlanta market, you're talking about nights and weekend business primarily, you know, weekdays, pretty slow in the daytime. So they were doing okay as far as the business goes. And, uh, but really the business needed to, to add and to grow sales in order to really become something that's more viable for, for a family. So are you saying that this is really a business that if it was handled properly, could maybe 50, 100%, maybe over time, a couple hundred percent increase in revenue because the location and the neighborhood type of ambience that was there, that was really the opportunity that someone that would come to the table would be looking at? Yes, yes, I think that that's correct. So it's adding, you know, driving sales, adding products, 
and to definitely, you know, get it in strong surge in sales to make it a very, very attractive business because the location wasn't a good market for that. It just needed some more ingredients to literally get the right taste. And what was the motivation? Was it they just weren't making enough money or they have other plans? What was the driving force behind stepping away from the business? The driving force for the family actually was that they had decided to um, get a different family experience and uh, join the ministry and to go and preach in South America. So very dramatic lifestyle change. So they were going to leave the country and enter the ministry in South America as a, an entire family. That is correct. Yep. Wow. So very different experience. <laughs> yeah. So who came to the table? So we've got a buyer. They were first-time buyers. A team of two people, one person, both corporate, or what we call corporate refugees, basically, coming out of corporate America. One person had a finance accounting background one person had a marketing background which is a good combination to own a small business um we had talked extensively with the sellers about what are some of the ingredients that they were considering and that would help launching the business to the next level and uh, one of the things that was talked about is, is adding uh the addition of coffee and tea to the mix so during their due diligence the Buyers actually worked and uh, uh, conduct a lot of study and really, really educated themselves in the field of tea and coffees and the, talked to vendors, suppliers, went to international expos to really educate themselves and to be very quick to launch uh, new products after closing, which is very rare because most buyers miss that point. They figure out they want to look in the past, but they're not ready for the future on day one. Well, it sounds like they were almost ideal buyers. I mean, good skill set, even though they're first-time buyers, they did their homework and obviously were financially qualified. Yes. And I was very, very surprised as well how well they did in due diligence, question they're asking, the work they've put in and um, the excitement that they had and also seeing the sellers um, had already scheduled the commitment to leave the country. And uh, it was a very um, positive and happy transactions for everybody. Um, so we go, um, ice cream shops don't open till noonish. So the morning of the closing, everybody meets actually in person at the attorney's office, sign documents and exchange funds. And everybody drove off from the attorney's office, went to the store and the seller had agreed to stay for a couple of weeks to help new buyers transitioning and show them the ropes, you know, hands on of the business. So everybody's very excited. And uh, a very positive, uplifting beginning for for the buyers. Well, I'm just curious. It sounds like everything has gone according to plan right now. You closed, not any big problems. The transaction unfolded as, as well as you could anticipate. I'm kind of curious on what's the big problem here. Well, this is a June, mid to late June, Wednesday afternoon close or Wednesday morning closing. So, um. One thing typical in the southeast and afternoons is uh, pretty heavy storms and showers and, you know, afternoon storm showers. On that day, actually, there was tornado warnings, thunder, lightning, and the pretty nasty storms in the area of the store location. So, um, unfortunately, a lot, a lot of people are thinking about going by ice cream in the middle of a storm. So, from noon till about three, no customer came in the store. With reasons, because there's a storm and it's part of retail. So at three o'clock, I get a call from the uh, seller asking me, I have a question. I said, well, what, what is it? He says, what do I do? The buyer just left, had me the keys, said, keep my money. I don't want the business anymore. Okay. Let me just restate, because I want to make sure that I understand <laughs> what you just said, is that the buyer... Because no one came into the business because there's a tornado watch out and people aren't, as you said, looking to buy ice cream during the middle of a rainstorm or tornado. No customers came in. And after a couple, three hours of this, they just freaked out and handed the keys back to the seller and walked out and said, we don't want the business. We made a mistake. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? You're exactly correct. 100% of it, Marvin. That is correct. Wow. 
Well, this is the second one that's kind of a new one here on the podcast. <laughs> I haven't had uh, that specific situation before. Very quickly, without getting into the details here too deep, what happened? I mean, I guess they, they're already planning on going to South America to start their ministry. So what did they do? Seller was supposed to leave in two weeks, exactly. And um, so I contacted the closing attorney. He contacted the buyers. They drafted documents. They undid the transaction. And uh, the seller became the legally the owner again, but they had to leave. So they had to scramble to find someone to operate the business. Right. So at the end of the day, did you find another buyer for the business? Yeah, it took three months after that that we relisted the, the business. Three months later, we did get a new buyer for that seller. But the seller was terrified the whole time because they were in South America trying to manage liabilities from, you know, thousands of miles afar. Wow. So they got a double dip. I mean, they sold the business twice, kept the money on the first transaction and sold the business again. Wow. That's really fascinating. <laughs> well, what would be the big takeaway on this, Eric? I think take away for a seller. I know everybody's exciting. You make plans, but maybe you want to allow for a cushion that you have a final sale and uh, try to teach maybe you know, your, your, your new owners a little bit of the time and not overwhelm them too rapidly with your transition. I think that's something that I've heard a number of times. That specific type of philosophy is that you treat your new buyers that are coming in, stepping into the business, because generally a seller has been doing this for years, if not decades. And you really need to treat that new buyer like a brand new employee and take your time and be nurturing and caring and don't try to have them drinking out of a fire hose because it's not the best thing for you or the buyer and that you really need to allow for a smooth transition because it's just not smart, in my opinion, and having been through several exits in my career, uh, to overwhelm a new buyer who is just getting familiar with the business. And so that's a great takeaway, but I've never heard anything that has been as extreme to freak out a buyer so bad that they walked away from the business completely like that. I agree. That was the first. That was the first for you, too. Out of 4,000 transactions, that was the first for you. It's <laughs> a first for me, too. <laughs> All right. Why don't you share a transaction that had its problems, but worked out well in the end? So we had a uh, sports bar and grill, three units that has been in business for over 35 years. The father had passed that uh, business to his son. His son ran it for over 20 years. And um, the son, of course, grew up in the business and decided that, you know, I want to experience something different. So I want to exit uh, the food industry. I wanted to exit that bar, restaurant, bar and grill business and do something totally different. So I'm ready to transition. Okay. So let me just ask a question here. Was this uh, partially due to burnout or just he was still excited about the business, but was just ready to move on to something different? Uh, or was it a combination of factors? I think it's a combination of factors. I think burnout had a little bit to do with it. And also when you 10 bar and you, you, know, you have customers and you see them going to an office and the corporate world, Sometimes if you look at it from the other side, it's got some appeal for them that, you know, you don't have to worry about who shows up to work and everything. So I think if you've never done it, all of us have done it and we're like, yeah, we don't want to go back there. But if you're on the other side, I think there's appeal for them to try what we have done and left. I assume that since this is a father and son operation, the father by this time, since so he's been in, in business for 35 years, had passed on at this point in time? Yeah, the father had passed away at that point in time also. So I think if not, that would have been probably a difficult transition for that son. Yeah. Okay. So you list the business and how does the transaction unfold? Yeah, we list them. Uh, the only way you want to sell is that's a three-store package. We'll not split them up. Two stores were really strong and one store was uh, average to slightly below average as far as performance goes. So sounds like a good package. Um, get a lot of interest. Well, I noticed in one thing, when uh, entrepreneurs get to a point of burnout, they take their eye off the ball sometimes in a store that has steady sales and with a burnt out owner uh, who doesn't spend that much time, even though the sales are steady, when someone isn't there managing the store as they used to, then food cost and labor cost and all those other things drive down profitability. Is that kind of what was happening here? Yes, no, you're correct. That's that's what happened. We could see a increase in food costs, labor costs, of course, a little slight diminishing um, 
returns and profit. But sales were remaining steady, but yes, and that's the, the, the telltales of an owner saying, hey, I'm kind of getting disconnected and not watching, you know, what I need to do and just throwing bodies at problems versus try to be more efficient and then not really spending a lot of time working the vendors, suppliers, you know, for to make sure that your costs are in line. So, yes, we that that's what the last three years were telling us. So we have a location or a business here. It's been around for 35 years, obviously a great reputation, doing well, or most of the locations are doing well. I would imagine that uh, that's appealing to a lot of people, especially with a, a business that's kind of being an institution type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot of interest. Um, we ended up on the contract with a first-time buyer that is a serial entrepreneur. So he had many different businesses, but always been to have a strong interest in food. And he wanted to make uh, an entry in that market. So he ended up... Um, Make an offer and be um, accepted. And so we work on due diligence and um, numbers checks out. What's um, the minor adjustments based on um, when you have a business been around 35 years and you're in it? It's uh, a lot of neglected maintenance sometimes uh, where duct tape is your friend versus the actual repairman. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Duct tape is my friend. I'm, I'm, that's, that's, I'm going to steal that one from you. <laughs> Absolutely, especially in the restaurant business. We see that from time to time where owners are very involved. And we see more duct tape, and when they're not, you see a lot more repair people. So we agreed on some adjustment. And uh, so everything moved along nicely, work with the landlords. So we're ready for smooth closing. Um, and then, of course, one last step, the closing attorney will perform is to pull a final lien search on each entities that are selling the assets of each of the businesses. And to kind of everyone's surprise, there was uh, uh, several liens. So you're, you're saying when they actually did the lien search, things showed up, which I guess they either knew about or didn't know about, which was the case. Yes, that's correct. So uh, there was liens from the IRS, the Department of Revenue, um, withholding taxes liens. So there was a lot of liens that were pretty serious that would prevent the business from transferring free and clear of any encumbrances, even if it's just the assets of it. So a lot of buyers, especially first-time buyers, would shy away. But again, the, we had a serial entrepreneur. Uh, the seller kind of knew about it. He just thought that they would not show up for some reason. Uh, and this was not some doing from his father. It was really doing from his uh, neglect of taking care of these expenses uh, over the last few years. Well, it's amazing to me, Eric, that even though you kind of explain the sellers of businesses just don't grasp the concept of these liens never disappearing, they're legally filed, and that's why people file liens, and the IRS included, is to protect that the obligations in the future, and they're not going to go away. In fact, some liens are paid and uh, they don't get properly recorded that is payment and it's difficult to get liens off even if they've been paid and if they've not been paid they're not going to go away correct and some of them may even have some success or liability my understanding is of some of these liens you know so it's it could be a it could be devastating for a buyer if these are not handled well how did it work out in this situation obviously the liens have to be paid because you can't transfer the business without satisfying those liens. So we came up with a creative solution. The buyer said, look, I will put some money in escrow to show you that uh, I will take over the business and let me and my team negotiate, see if we can negotiate some of these liens because some of it was interest penalties, different things, um, and go back even and look that the amounts were correct. So they look at that. If they allow me to look at that and work with my team and negotiate, and if we can get to some numbers that are acceptable, then we will be able to consume the transaction solely. And we would ask for six months window to perform these tasks. So what you're saying, the deal structure was basically they're going to put money in escrow. You arrived at a price and anything that you weren't able to negotiate away was deducted from the actual sales price of the business. Correct. That is exactly correct. That's pretty creative. Yeah. And um, so the buyer worked, and it took nine months, actually, to clear everything. But we're able to successfully clear 
everything from that end. But to the buyer's surprise as well, as he took over the stores, uh, people were walking in each of the locations and saying that the seller owes them money, whether it's personal or uh, other vendors without a lien, uh, were coming in and keep, keep claiming that they owe him substantial amount of monies. Well, most of those people, unless they have a lien file, because the reason you structure transactions the way you do as an asset sale is to preclude that type of a situation. And so even though they may owe money, the buyer really wasn't in any obligation to satisfy those obligations for the prior owner. I guess unless it was a vendor that was crucial to the business, were there any of those? There was a couple only, luckily, that there was special product. But the buyer, like you said, they structured an asset sale in different corporation. He was able to kind of say, look, um, I, I may give you pennies because we want to continue a relationship. And honestly, I would prefer not to um, give you any money, but to continue to service us because we will grow and grow sales and, and operate in a much different manner. And we are very solvent. So we are able to... Um, to continue in that matter, or if not, we'll have to find other suppliers. But there was only a couple that had minimal amounts to continue. All right. So here we have a, an experienced buyer, a serial entrepreneur who structured the deal appropriately, was able to use his business skills and experience to complete a transaction that had really no hope of closing otherwise. And he was able to negotiate a situation where it worked out for him. And obviously it was last resort for that seller because he was motivated to get out of the business. I'm just curious, how did this turn out for this buyer? Did he just continue on with these three locations? What did he do with the business? Sounds like he's pretty aggressive and creative. Correct. That's a very good question, actually. From the from the buyer's side, is six years later, this buyer has grown this business now to 11 locations, about to open a 12th location. So he was able to take what he had and build upon it very aggressively. So the takeaway here, I guess, from my perspective, and let me see if you agree with this, Eric, if you are looking at a buyer who is going to make an offer on your business, you want to look at someone that has the experience, especially if you're going to carry back some promissory notes or earn out or something of that nature. But you shouldn't shy away from someone that is looking to grow the business. You want someone that can take the business, especially if you have a legacy tied up and all that hard work that you've put in. Also, if you are a seller that is not quite ready to sell. And you know that acquisitions can get really messy sometimes. And sometimes the best acquisitions are the most messy acquisitions. And I think as this story and transaction that you've shared with us here today, Eric, kind of shows that even though this transaction was messy, this turned out to be a home run for the buyer of this business. Would you agree with that statement on the takeaway from something like this? I definitely agree. I think even if you consider sometimes selling, maybe growing, acquiring, and get more for your value in a couple of years on the road could be a very good strategy. Because in this case here, uh, seller, like you said, may thought he would have been done, but he may have been able to grow and maybe take care of a lot of these issues and sell for a higher premium as well, because there was a, a lot of goodwill built into that, that business with the name and the location that I think he missed out on, or he could have acquired somebody else that was distressed, like you said, because of his knowledge in the industry. It would have been a pretty good acquisition in the, the long run. So I do agree with your comments, yes. Well, let's move on to kind of wrap things up here. Uh, these have been fascinating stories, Eric. I have to tell you, I just really enjoyed our discussion here today. And let's see if we can wrap up with something that can tie everything in a bow with one more transaction or takeaway for our audience here today. Sure. So next one I have for you, I have a restaurant bar and grill in a um, little north of Atlanta in a suburban area, about an hour north of Atlanta. And this place has been in business for probably about 25 years. The first owner sold it to another local family. And this is the place, the go-to place in town, whether it's Friday night, the high school football rally before and after the game, whether you celebrate your promotion, your kid's birthday, your anniversary, you lose your job, whatever it is, this is the place to go where everybody knows you're in town and the who's who of town. This is almost like Cheers, huh? We're a place where everyone knows you, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, 
<laughs> correct. This is your little long slice of cheers. That's correct. And uh, and it's been family run. And this this gentleman, his wife, and uh, when he bought it, he had uh, younger kids, and his kids got to more to teenage, late teenage age, and help in the business. So it became a family business. But it was to the point that the business became the whole family activity, and they did not like that. And they were from a different state. And they said, you know, we need to go back to our roots and be closer to aunts and uncles and grandpa and grandma and move back home and spend more quality time as a family than just, you know, seeing each other at the bar and grill every day. So I'm just kind of curious. It sounds like they ran a great business. And so versus some of the other transactions you've shared here, did everything kind of check out on the due diligence side? I mean, it was a, it sound like a a pretty well-run business. Yes, absolutely. And, and unlike the other one we discussed, this was um, perfect books and records, tax returns, P&L. This is pre-qualified for lending. Everything matched the penny, monthly sales tax receipt. Everything is right there in the open and it adds up to the penny. So great business from that perspective. So who showed up to be a buyer of this business? Was it a larger company or local family again or what? No, so it's interesting. So the buyer that showed up what something that was worth considering for the sellers was a person, first time buyer, zero restaurant experience that was actually a consultant and I guess call it micro financial. This guy is a detailed accountant to the 10th power, very myopic kind of a background. Well, it doesn't sound like a great fit. Doesn't sound like a people person, which a bar and grill local institution would need. Uh, myself included, the seller. Um, a very serious doubt, but his offer was very strong. So sellers like, you know, it's a very good offer and bank financing was already uh, pre-approved. So uh, he said, this guy qualifies for bank financing. I'm getting my money and I'm out of here. I will do my best to help him. But, you know, once I get paid, I'm done. I He'll be all right. That was the kind of the philosophy of the, the seller. All right. Go ahead. Tell us how this turned out. Yeah. So we go to due diligence, very detailed, very lengthy due diligence, but class of flying color. So the bank comes back with an approval, but a little curveball on the approval. They are requesting that the seller hold back a second mortgage for 10% of the purchase price with also a standby which means no payments for the first two years. And then the amount of money will be amortized with a low interest rate over 10-year repayment. Well, that changes the picture a little bit. However, if it's a strong offer and you got close to asking price and you're moving to another state, what did the seller do in this case? Did the seller accept the terms of the 10% and did the buyer agree to that? The seller, uh, with huge reservation, did accept to do it because we demonstrate to him that the offer was so strong, even if he would not get a penny of it, it was still will be within the range that other offers would come in. So the risk was minimal when we presented to him that way. So they accepted that. So here we got due diligence completed, lending now completed. One more step, as we learned earlier today, landlords. So send a package to the landlord. Uh, remember, this is a first-time buyer, no experience. His motivation for buying the place that he had fond memories of playing music in a similar um, locale back when he was in college. That is his motivation to buy the business. And his wife wants him home more because he's on the road as a consultant. So these are the two main motivations for him to buy the business. So the landlord says, we will approve him as a tenant. But we want the current seller to stay on the lease for five more years. And keep in mind, he was leaving. He had one more year left. Well, that changes the liability quite dramatically. Two years, five years on a lease or whatever, you have to stay obligated on the lease. It's a big deal, especially under these circumstances of a first-time buyer. Yes. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars of potential liability here for the seller if this first-time buyer does not hold on to the business and keep it profitable. Well, let's just fast forward here. How did this work out? This worked out where we were able to reduce the actual liability to the seller from five years to two years by getting the buyer to add an extra month of security deposit to the lease. So that was we're able to resolve that and get the seller comfortable enough to go ahead and close on the business, wait two years for his money, 
and move to a different state. And I don't know if you know how things turned out in this after a period of time. Was this first-time buyer? Was he able to get his head around the business and be able to grow it? How did it work out? So we had a couple of phone calls and we helped him on a couple of issues, but then we didn't hear from him. So he had a few bumps in the road early on, then we didn't hear from him. And two years later, he called me and um, remember there was a standby um, note for the seller and the payment was starting two years later. He had grown the business by 30% and then a check for the full amount, interest included to the seller after two years he paid the note in full, and 12 years later, he called me back. We have an accountant, someone that's very anal on the financials that hasn't had any restaurant experience. Was he able to integrate? I mean, this institution that requires a lot of FaceTime and things like that, did it work out where the clientele accepted him and embraced him, or did he spend his time in the computer in the back room? No, actually, he put himself out there, worked really, really hard, and... Uh, learn and then had you know customer buying him drinks and uh showing the tricks of the trade how to maximize return on that drink and not getting uh inebriated i guess <laughs> during work and uh he learned all these tricks and uh so you're saying that the customers were welcoming him in as the new owner and they were buying him shots or drinks yes they were buying him shots and drinks and he tells me he says you know by nine o'clock at night i am drunk and i cannot work what do i do <laughs> So it's a good and bad thing. <laughs> so this is going on day after day, and these people are walking in and they're buying him shots. And by the end of the day, he's wasted. And he's basically not being able to function in his role as the owner. That sounds like a good problem to have, actually. So how did that work out? Well, we advised them to keep a bottle of Jägermeister under the counter and empty it and put Coca-Cola in it. And when the, somebody buys them a shot, he rings them up at $6, and the bartender knows which one is the owner bottle, and he just takes a shot of Coca-Cola. So he's going to be pretty sugared up by the end of the evening, but he'll still be able to function. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's a creative solution. I haven't heard of that one before. That's great. I think it uh, sounds like a transaction that worked out well for everyone, even though there was a little bit risk. So what would you say is the big takeaway for our audience here today? I, I think it's really hard for when you're selling your business, everybody wants the perfect sellers. But sometimes you have to believe in someone and, and, and take a little bit of risk. It is going to be part of that. Landlords will demand it. Sometimes bank will demand it. And, and just don't be totally closed up to that. Looked at it. And look at really what is your bottom line risk. And don't be afraid to take a little bit of risk. Because, I mean, you bought a business yourself at some point. You took a risk and somebody took a chance on you. All right. Well, I guess to consolidate that down to a soundbite here, it's really don't be adverse to take a little bit of risk when you're looking at different sellers, when sellers are looking at different buyers. But you have to do it prudently. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion here, Eric. I appreciate you taking the time. If someone wanted to reach out to you and get a hold of you, what would be the best way for them to do that? A few ways. You can go to WeSellRestaurants.com on our website. My direct email is sales, S-A-L-E-S, at WeSellRestaurants.com. And our phone number is 404 800-6700. Well, Eric has been a delightful conversation. So this is Marvin L. Storm with Business Exit Stories, and we'll see you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.